0: Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to ask. I got a couple of little personal announcements to make. Last Sunday, right after he spoke at his church, David Lanning, the pastor. Uh Springfield Faith Center tragically passed away of a heart attack. And it, it devastated a lot of us as his friends and pastors that knew him. And today's their first Sunday without him. And so could you bow and pray with me? And I just want to pray for that congregation and that family. Through the book of Mark. And we're going to continue that today. And I'm not even going to get out of chapter 1 today. There's so much good stuff in this book. So today we're going to take a look at sacraments and sp- Spiritual beings, okay? Let's start with sacraments. Let's read Mark chapter 1, just verse 4 and 5. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness out in the desert, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him there in the Jordan River. I'll circle back to these verses in a minute, but first, let me introduce you to a fancy church word. The word is sacraments or sacraments. Sacraments are physical rites that we go through that help us experience spiritual realities in God help us experience their visible practices that we participate in that help us to experience the invisible God. There's somehow physical things that are ushering in the spiritual. In our church, we participate in several different sacraments. We participate in communion, in wedding ceremonies, and in baptism. I also consider funerals to be a sacrament, me personally, but you're not aware of them when they're going on, <laughs> okay? So, but I'll do the funeral for you anytime. I rock at funerals, they're my favorite, okay? Um, now, In the verses we just read, John is helping people to participate in the sacrament of baptism. Some people think that John the Baptist invented baptism because of his name, John the Baptist. That's not true. He didn't. It was going on for years before him, but he did revolutionize it. Before John came along, baptism was only offered to a select few for the spiritually elite, so to speak, for the people that were the in-crowd of various religious establishments at the time. They would participate in these ceremonial washings. That was their form of baptism at the time. And one of the reasons they did this is because they believed that average people walking around were spiritually contaminated or spiritually polluted. So when they came into contact with them, that spiritual pollution got onto them. So they would be baptized. They would go through these ceremonial washings to cleanse themselves physically, but mostly to wash the filth off of them from ordinary human beings. Okay? Neat idea. Along comes John, and he starts baptizing people way out in the boonies, in the wilderness. And there are a few things i like to point out about his baptisms. First of all, they were personal. When you were baptized by John, it wasn't about other people's sins and other people's failures and other people's impurities. It was about your sins and your impurities. People flooded out into the wilderness. They flocked out into the wilderness in order to get a clean slate. Because the people that John baptized, they had to do some soul searching. They had to own their stuff, so to speak. And then they repented of it and received mercy and forgiveness from God. And I believe that the Judean wilderness, when he was baptizing, was a big, fat party because people were excited about that. They were excited to get mercy. They were excited to receive forgiveness. They were excited to get a clean slate from God. There's an organization called People of the Second Chance, and I wish they wouldn't have taken that name because that would have been our church name, People of the Second Chance Church. It's just awesome. You might not like it, but I think it's super cool, okay? Because they're all about forgiveness, how to help people walk into forgiveness and receiving God's forgiveness. And when people are involved in something that brings them shame and guilt and remorse, and then they turn from it and get back on the path that God wants them on, they throw them, the people of the second chance, throw them what's called prodigal parties, And it's from a story out of the book of Luke where this son, the prodigal son, leaves home, leaves his senses, goes out and just starts to ruin his life and all this wild living. And he finally comes to his right mind again and returns home. And his father sees him coming and he runs and embraces him and throws him a big party because he says, it's like my son was dead before, but now he's alive again. And that's why I believe what was happening out in the wilderness. People were getting clean slates, and they felt alive again. And I believe the whole wilderness was full of people that were partying like prodigals. That's what was going on. I have never done a baptism that wasn't a celebration, that wasn't a party, okay? Second thing, it was for everyone. John made the sacrament of baptism available to all, not just these holier-than-thou, self-proclaimed, spiritually elite people. And the idea that baptism was for everyone caught on. And you can tell that because when you read the book of Acts, which is a few books past the book of Mark, there's this amazing story. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And there's a guy named Philip. He was an early leader in the church, an early Jesus follower. And he's walking along and suddenly an angel appears to him and says, I want you to go walk on the road that's outside of Jerusalem. So he does it. He does it because angel When an angel tells you something, you tend to go, oh, okay, I'll do it. And so he's walking on this road outside of Jerusalem, and he comes into contact with an Ethiopian eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch um, who was in the king's royal court. Now, this is a man who had been castrated for one reason or another, and now he was one of the king's officials. And what he probably was doing was he was in charge of the king's harem because he posed no sexual threat as a eunuch, he was also most likely the king's food taster. Now, there's a job nobody wants, okay? I'm going to taste this food. Yep, that was poison. I'm going to die. You probably shouldn't eat this. I mean, that's a terrible job, but that's what he had, okay? So, he travels from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in a chariot, which, Google it, It's far. There are no trains, no planes. It is far. And he traveled this great distance so he could be a part of a worship ceremony that was going on in the temple of Jerusalem. And he gets there only to be rejected, to be turned away for two reasons. First of all, he was a foreigner, so his skin was a different color. Even back then, you know, racism had its place, unfortunately, even in the church. So he was turned away because of that, and he was always also turned away because he was a eunuch. He was considered defective by the people in Jerusalem at the time, a sexual other. So now he's traveling back to Ethiopia, rejected and dejected, and he's in his chariot, and he's reading the scripture, and along comes Philip, and Philip sees him, starts explaining the scripture that he's reading to him because he didn't understand it, and then he baptizes him And we read that and think, oh, big deal, he baptized him. Just a nice little ceremony out there in the wilderness. No, no. it was so risky for Philip to do this. It was so taboo as a spiritual leader in the church at this time. You didn't baptize people like this. It was a definite no-no. He was risking his friendships, his relationship with his mothership, the church that supported him. He was risking his own reputation to do this. But Philip baptizes him because like John, he knew that the good news about Jesus and the sacraments are available for all. They're for everybody, no exceptions. Some churches only allow their members to participate in the sacraments. We do too. The difference is we just think everybody's a member, okay? We don't have official membership here because that says you're in and you're out and we don't believe that. So if you're here, you're a member. Congratulations, okay? You're a member of Fifth Avenue Church, all right? Now, because of this, I believe everybody is a member we offer the sacraments to all people here. Baptism, wedding ceremonies, communion, we offer it to everybody because my job as a pastor is to help people connect to God. So I would never want to turn them away from an activity that actually helps them experience God. So the sacraments here are available for all, okay? Thirdly, His baptisms were about grace. I was reading recently, uh, and I want to do this, but of a pastor that went on a two-day silent retreat. And for pastors, that's hard because our job is to talk all the time, and you can't on these retreats. And I, oh my gosh, I think it would be so great but so difficult. And on the retreat, she met a tiny little nun named Eileen. And she's kind of a busy pastor, so she was going, I hope this nun, this tiny little nun, gives me something to do to pass the time while I'm being quiet. Like prayers to pray, maybe, or, or scripture readings, or chores even, anything. I just want something to do to pass the time. But instead, this diminutive little nun said to her this, I don't think you should do anything while you are here. I just want you to walk around in the knowledge that you are loved by God, regardless of anything you've done or not done. <laughs> How awesome is that? And you might think, oh, that would be easy. It's not try it, okay? As soon as this pastor started walking around and just thinking about the fact she's loved, regardless of her performance, she burst into tears. She said, it stung. That thought actually stung me a little, probably because being loved apart from our performance is something we rarely experience in our culture. And then there's this, Let's go back to John here. John ends up baptizing Jesus himself. And when he does, something magical happens. Let's look out on Mark chapter 1, verse 11, just later down in the chapter. Jesus is baptized, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I loved. With you I am well pleased. This is amazing. Because Jesus hadn't done anything yet. Anything of note The voice didn't say, oh, Jesus, I love you so much. You're my beloved son because of all those lepers you healed. Or Jesus, you're my beloved son because you read your Bible every day. You couldn't do that. There were no Bibles back then, okay? Or Jesus, I love you so much because that whole water and the wine thing, that was fabulous. No, he says he is loved. Jesus was loved just because he was. It's a grace thing. The same thing happens to all of us during our baptism, it happens every day of our life, but in a special way in our baptisms. As we're baptized, we realize it's not about our love and devotion for God. That's what people make baptisms into. I'm getting baptized because I love God and I'm so dedicated to him. No, that's not what our baptisms are about. Our baptisms are about the fact that God loves and is dedicated to us. This is why I'll, I'll baptize people anywhere, anytime, any place. Sure, you can get baptized here during our baptism ceremonies, and we do those. Well, there's one coming up not too long from now. But I'll baptize you anywhere. I'll baptize you in a pool. I'll baptize you in the river. I've done that. I'll baptize you in the fountain at downtown Eugene if I have to, okay? Because I want every single human being to experience this physical rite that ushers in the spiritual I want you to go through this activity that helps you to realize that God loves you with an unmerited, unending love. You know, an interesting study was done not too long ago, and it caught my eye because my wife's a teacher. And it was done with teachers and elementary students, but they didn't tell the teachers what the experiment was. It was a blind study. And what happened is they told the teachers that several of the kids coming into their class that year were extremely gifted despite their capacities, their current truthful capacities. So they were just told, these kids are extremely gifted. The study found out that by the end of the year, those kids who were labeled gifted by the, by the scientists were testing off the charts academically, okay? They became what they were believed to be. I want to say that to you one more time, because I want you to catch that. They became what they're believed to be. Could you close your eyes? I want you to just concentrate not on what I'm saying. I want you to hear something from God right now. Okay? Don't hear it from me. Hear it from the Lord. Hear this. You are gifted. You are loved. And those truths don't depend on what you do or don't do. They are simply true. Now live out those truths. Live out your true identity. Become What you're believed to be. Hear that from God. Become what you're believed to be. Now you can look up at me. You know, one of the greatest struggles you're going to face on this spiritual journey with God that you're on is not some big temptation. It's the struggle to believe what you just heard from God. That will be one of your greatest struggles. To believe that you are loved and gifted apart from your current performance. It's one of the biggest struggles any Jesus follower has. Okay? Now let's move on to spiritual beings. I want to read Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. This is a fun section. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was... This is talking about Jesus. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. <laughs> wow. Okay. What an interesting section. First of all, it says Jesus was with the wild animals. So this was no spa weekend out in some desert oasis, okay, for Jesus. This was a scary, lonely place he found himself in. And then second, it says angels attended him. Alrighty then, here we are introduced for the first time in the New Testament about the idea that there are spiritual beings in our midst, not fat, naked, heart-playing babies like you're going to see during Valentine's weekend, okay, but actual powerful spiritual beings from another realm. I've talked about this before, but I'm going to revisit it today because it's awesome, okay? I believe in angels for several reasons. First of all, because the Bible talks about them all the time in the Old Testament and the New Testament. All the time, all the time. Like the amount of commercials you're going to see in the Super Bowl all the time. That's the first reason I believe in them, because I trust God's Word. The second reason is I have read and heard too many stories about them to believe otherwise. And you know the stories, Stories of people encountering these mysterious strangers just in the moment of their greatest need. And the stranger helps them out. And before they can even turn and say, thank you, poof, that stranger is gone in a mysterious way. I've heard those all the time. There are people sitting next to you who have had actual encounters with angels. It's amazing. I'm glad I believe in angels. It's a good thing to believe in angels. And I want to tell you some benefits of believing in angels today. It's an odd sermon, I know, but you're going to like this, okay? First of all, believing in angels means we are not alone. Loneliness is a plague on our society now. It's devastating people. We have more information than ever, but far less connection than ever right now. There is so much isolation going on right now, and it's killing people. To believe in angels is to recognize that you're never truly alone. In the verses we just read, Jesus had been all by his onesie out in the wilderness. Just him, some scary animals, and in an intense spiritual battle. No doubt he felt completely alone and maybe even forgotten about. But he wasn't. I want to show you a painting by a French painter named James Tizot, I think is how you pronounce his last name. This will do it no justice. It's actually a lot more brilliant color in real life. And it's a picture of Jesus... After his temptation in the wilderness that we just read about, and he's exhausted, he's almost passed out, and there's all these angels, and they look dark, but they're not. They're actually blue in the real painting with flames on their head, and they're not just sitting there. They're reaching out to him. They're touching him. They're reminding him, you're not alone. You're not forgotten about. We're right here. I believe that's exactly what angels do for us. I think they do the same thing in those moments where you feel isolated, devastatingly alone, maybe even abandoned. I believe angels reach out to you somehow in the spiritual dimension and touch you and remind you of those truths. You're not forgotten about. You're not alone. We're here and we're going to bring people into your life as well. All right? And by the way, a lot of times angels are going to look just like your friends and family members. Just remember that, okay? The second reason I believe in angels and it's a great benefit is because they give us courage. Every day we read about death and violence and crime and corruption and scary stuff happening. I'm having to wean myself off of reading the news online every night because every time I read it, I go, oh my gosh, I'm kicking into chicken little mode. The sky is falling. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, and everybody's evil. You know, I just start to think thoughts like that, and I get all freaked out. But the truth is we need some courage. The Bible describes people encountering angels in just such moments, and the angels fill them with courage and remind them that, All is not lost, and the sky isn't falling. I'll give you two examples, and they're both named Mary from the Bible. The first is Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Christmas story amazes me, because here's Mary, probably a teenager at the time, unwed, traveling to Bethlehem, and an angel appears to her and delivers not-so-subtle news, saying, hey, Mary, I know you're a virgin and everything, but you're going to get pregnant. (laughs) He doesn't really explain how that's going to happen. He just says, the Lord will be upon you. Okay, because that... That yeah, clears it all up, okay? So the Lord will cover you and you'll be with child and you'll give birth to a son. And by the way, he'll be the very son of the living God and his kingdom will go on forever. So, no pressure there for a first time parent, right? She's undoubtedly completely overwhelmed and freaked out. So, the angel goes on to say this to her Do not be afraid. And somehow it clicks with Mary and she's filled with amazing courage, and she says to the angel, be it unto me according to what you've said, or in modern-day lingo, she says, yeah, let's do this, and then she goes about, and it happened. The second Mary is Mary Magdalene, or Mary Mags to her friends, and in Matthew 28, Mary Mags had this experience. Jesus had died. It left all the Jesus followers heartbroken. He hadn't been resurrected yet. So she goes to his tomb to just participate in one act more of kindness towards him, one more memory about him. And she goes to the tomb, and an earthquake occurs, and an angel pops up and says to her those same words that the other Mary heard. Do not be afraid, which is remarkable because she says them to her during an earthquake. Who isn't afraid during an earthquake? We had a slight little tremor here once in Eugene, just enough to make the, like, the cups rattle on my shelves, and I was like, what is happening? I instantly freaked out. I did not like the feel of the ground under my feet. There was a large earthquake. One of my friends was going to Percussion Institute of Technology as a drummer in Hollywood, California, and that one of those huge earthquakes hit. As I'm talking to him on the phone, and he is freaking out like a little elementary school girl, okay, on the phone. And I didn't blame him a bit. I, I just hung up the phone and said, call me later if you can, because I knew the lines might go down. They did. He was terrified. I talked to some people in Hawaii during an earthquake, and they said, oh my gosh, it was terrifying. I mean, earthquakes are terrifying. The ground that you think is going to be steady isn't. And he says, do not be afraid to her. And remarkably. She was no longer afraid. It says she left the scene of this earthquake, not in fear, but in joy. And she told everybody else what had happened. Angels and courage go together. I used to think that angels told the people in the scriptures, do not be afraid, because any time a powerful spiritual being from another realm just pops up in front of you and starts talking, I think that would be a scary occurrence, Okay. So, you probably, angels probably have to say, do not be afraid just for that reason. But I think they say it for another reason, too. I think they say it because they're actually speaking courage into people's lives. Angels are messengers. That's what the word means. They're messengers of love, a love so powerful it can actually displace the fear in our life and replace it with courage. I think this because all of the people in the Bible that are told do not be afraid by angels went on to do courageous thing. So who knows? Maybe in those moments when you feel terrified about something, when you feel overwhelmed about something and you're freaking out and you're starting to go all little chicken little. And then all of a sudden you have this insane blast of courage come into you. Maybe those are the moments when an angel is whispering those very words into your spirit. Be not afraid. And that courage displaces the fear. Lastly, a benefit of believing in angels, it reminds us of mystery. This life of following Jesus is not about certainty. It's about faith and doubt and questions and things we can't measure or even understand, and angels remind us there are some things that are so big we simply can't comprehend them. I've never seen an angel. I actually don't want to. I think it would frighten me so bad I'd just pass out, okay? I've never seen an angel. I can't prove they exist, but I believe they do, and I believe they're just another example that there's more to this world than meets the eye, there are beings that are bigger than us. There are realms that are beyond us. There are realities that we can't even prove. But that's what makes the journey so fun. I was reading a book, and I told some people that I was on vacation with about it. There's an author, and she does about three different times during the book. She just gives these, this how-to advice. Here's how to do this in some simple steps. And I want to read some of those to you And because I made a how-to um, little process for my own. And they, they go like this. The first one, and I read this especially for Andrea here, how to ruin your toddler's life. Any of you that has had toddlers or currently do, this is how to ruin your toddler's life. There's only one step. Pour him one eighth of an inch less of milk in his cup than his brother got in his cup. That will ruin your toddler's life. The second one is how to ruin your teenager's life. Some of you have teenagers. There's only one step to this too breathe. That's the only step. (laughs) Your simple existence will ruin their life, okay? Number three, how to get a good night's sleep when your kids are young. Step one, ha, there is no such thing, just make more coffee, okay? (laughs) I love that one. I made a how-to list for us today that relates to this point. How to realize that you're part of something much bigger than yourself. Step one, mine actually has four steps. Step one, look at the stars. And then as you're looking at them, hold up a dime. And when you hold up that dime, you don't realize this, but you're blotting out from your view thousands of other galaxies. That's how big our universe is. If that step alone doesn't freak you out and make you realize there's things that are bigger than yourself, I don't know what will, but maybe some of these other things. Number two, pay attention to your doubts. We're taught to ignore our doubts. Please don't. They mean your faith has a pulse, okay? Pay attention to your doubts. They make you think about mystery, and they make you ask really interesting questions. That's step two. Step three, pray this prayer that's from Monty Python that I'll put up on the screen because you're going to want it and write it down for later. It's such a great prayer. Oh, Lord, ooh, you are so big. So absolutely huge. Gosh, we're all really impressed down here. I can tell you, forgive us, O Lord, for this um, dreadful toting and barefaced flattery. But you are so strong and, well, just so super. Fantastic. Amen. (laughs) That is a great prayer to pray, like on a weekly basis in your life. And number four, if none of these things work, simply consider the fact That there are powerful spiritual beings from another realm that exist around you. Oh, my gosh. Let's pray, can we? Thank you, God, for the sacrament of baptism. One of the physical tools that you use to help us experience the spiritual, to experience more of you. It reminds you, Lord, that you always offer clean slates to us which just makes us want to party like the prodigal son. And baptism reminds us that you love us, Lord, and that love is for everybody, no exceptions. And it reminds us, Lord, of our true identity. We are gifted and we are loved no matter what our performance is. And God, thank you for angels. I believe in them, Lord. Thank you for the angels that attended you and who rescue us from isolation also, who speak courage into us, Lord, when we're feeling forgotten about, and who show us that life is full of mystery and we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves, Lord. Thank you for this journey through the book of Mark and all that you're going to show us, Lord, and thank you most of all for you. In your name we pray. Everyone set? Amen. Have a glorious Super Bowl holiday weekend. If you need any prayer and you haven't experienced a Jimmy prayer for your life, Jimmy will be up here and he'll pray for you. Have a blessed week. God bless.